if one thing, if one good thing comes out of this COVID-19 crisis is that probably there will be a lot of demystifying of the role of robots. Uh, welcome to a brand new episode of our podcast, Human and AI, Mind, Machines, and the Gradient Descent. So thanks for tuning in, and you know, it means the world to us that you're listening to us. Uh, we are Kees and Uli, today's moderators, and I would actually like to go and introduce our, introduce our guest today, which is Juan Apricio Ojea from Siemens Corporate Technology in Berkeley, California. So his goal is to create intelligent, autonomous industrial machines with a combination of automation, digitalization, and AI. So really deep into the field. He's also awarded the MIT Tech Review, Innovator Under 35 Europe in 2019. So with that said, Juan, could you maybe elaborate on this and describe yourself in one minute to say who you are and what you do? Thank you, guys. Thank you, Uli, for having me here to make a good high-level introduction. So I could add that, in essence, I am a robotics fan, a robotics evangelist, if you want, that has the luck to lead a team of extremely talented automation and AI enthusiasts. I have an amazing team, and with their hard work, we are really trying to revolutionize the world of flexible manufacturing and robotics. And we don't do this alone. We are lucky enough to be part of the innovation ecosystem of Silicon Valley, and we have great partnerships, academia, startups. All right, Juan. But le- before we dive into the technology, right, let's let's step one back, right? Uh, we, we are in somehow in a challenging time, aren't we, right? And so if you would choose a song or band or, you know, a soundtrack that, that would somehow, you know, reflect your current mood or the current setup the last couple of weeks your team and you are into, uh, what would be the music like? Yeah, I have to say, choose a song for my favorite band, probably Dire Strides, Brothers in Arms. I think it reflects a little bit how we are all fighting together this common enemy as brothers around the world. It's not a problem that is local, it's a problem, a crisis that we are all facing as a world, as a humanity, and step by step we are winning. That's kind of reflecting my... All right. The meanest crisis, are you referring to the current uh, corona situation? or and, and with that said, actually, I would like to ask you the following. Mm, so you're leading the research group on advanced manufacturing automation. And how does this impact uh, you and your team in this current situation? How is that any different for you guys? So we are people that work a lot with, with hardware and, and robots, and we definitely miss our robots. Funny enough, some of my team members have their own robots at home, which is very interesting trend to see on how price of robots are getting low, that even people at their homes can have collaborative robots working with them and doing some tasks at home. So that's very exciting. As obviously, but as I said, not having the physical, the access to the physical assets, we are all working from home and we do as much work as we can on, on simulation and try to also talk with each other often, use all the platforms that we have at our, that are available to us to, to keep in touch, right? To still not isolate ourselves and, and it's working, right? It's, we feel even in, by working from home and not seeing my team day to day, I think we feel closer more than ever. We are having the same problems, the same challenges. We are facing them as a team. You mentioned the, the home, at home, you said robots at home. What, what kind of examples can you give of people having robots at home that aid them in their daily life? <laughs> so that's, is a, to be honest, it's one of the first use cases of an industrial arm that I have seen really bridging the gap between having it in manufacturing somewhere or in a soft floor and having it at home. I mean, everybody has a, or a lot of people have a, a Roomba, right? This is from iRobot, deployed robots out there. 
that does some kind of bike cleaning. I mean, preferably less than what you can expect, but it's still cool for open spaces. I can navigate. Doesn't go up the stairs, so that's where it stops. It's, cool. it's interesting to see that a lot of while there are a lot of interesting companies popping up in manufacturing or in the autonomous driving space. Almost every company that I know, the startup that I try to go into the the space of commercial robots, like for homes, they all have failed. It's just very hard, right? The consumers are when we deliver a solution to a B two C to a customer, it has to work. It has to work all the time. It has to be wrapped and what people have figured out also is that houses are very different to each other and the environment is not as constrained as in a factory. Is it also that the Roomba brought you to the field of corporate research or what What, what brought you actually then in there? Was it consumer goods or was it uh, always, you know, to make an impact on industrial floor, on the shop floor level, uh, pushing more automation in the manufacturing? Yeah, it was definitely on the on the manufacturing side more than more than the home robotics. So I started, I had the luck uh, a few years ago to got the task from my previous boss, hey Juan, I want you to design how the factory of the future look like and you don't have any constraints. So yes, yourself, sit, uh, talk with whoever you want in Siemens, outside Siemens, but design the factory of the future. You can use Siemens components or non-Siemens components, anything. So then when I was getting deeper, deeper on today's technology, I was realizing, okay, there is a huge opportunity. We have become very good in automating predictable processes, processes that are easy to, to model. Or when I say easy, it's with all the respect to engineers and mathematicians that create those models, but things that repeat themselves, like I do the same car a thousand times, so I can automate that. But still, we use humans for anything where you require any flexibility, any dexterity. But that's a huge opportunity, right? That humans are getting, human labor is getting more scarce, also the skills of people like that can do the job is getting tougher and tougher to find those skills. And we are, I mean, linking back to the COVID-19 situation. It's even more accentuated right now that we need more machines working along and enhancing the work of humans. So that was what brought me to the field of automation and robotics. After I designed that factory, if anybody has the luck to go to Princeton, New Jersey, they can see the lab in action. I went to, to Berkeley in California, continue the work, but in a bigger scope to make this a reality. So if you think about these achievements in the factory, for instance, and all these other things, and you've mentioned the, the automation of very simple things has been very helpful uh, in the last years. What would you consider the, the major breakthrough or let's say the mind-blowing change, uh, well, maybe in, in AI of the last few years? What has been the biggest change for you? So it's interesting how the field of AI merged with with automation, and I can give you my perspective from the robotics world. I mean, definitely what uh, helped was the uh, the hype, but also the the work around autonomous cars. It's really bootstrap and started an entire industry. And people realized that with the technologies back then, I mean, it's really started, even though there are claims of autonomous cars, uh, very cool videos from technologies from 80s or 90s. We recently discovered that Siemens had the first cleaning robot in the 2000s. It was very cool. Completely autonomous cleaning robot for supermarkets. Available, developed by Siemens. The first slam commercial application in early 2000. But it was too early, right? They decided to, to stop that. But that's an interesting finding. But to my point, definitely autonomous cars industry exploded. And they realize, okay, we can really achieve this 99% of autonomous driving, but this 1% is taking forever, right? And that's because of a good reason, right? Because the, the world is completely 
there is no structure, right? A kid can jump suddenly and go after a ball. There are, it can be a deer across this street, maybe doing rock uh, blocks. The painting may be different. But in manufacturing on their side, you can con- constrain the environment. And that's very powerful. So when I started uh, talking with some brilliant minds in, in robot learning, merging the AI, bringing it to robotics, people like Peter Aville, Ken Goldberg, or Sergey Levin in Berkeley, it was a lot of focus on end-to-end learning and not necessarily on manufacturing. But suddenly, but after collaborating with them, after developing trust and some projects, I think the appetite for manufacturing was always there. And we were able to really bring that research into manufacturing problems. Where you have, again, it's on the one side, you have to be very precise. You have to be 99.99 precise, but at least you're at the system level. But on the other side, you can, as I said, constrain the environment and you have the CAD files of almost, the CAD files of almost everything around you. So you can leverage a lot of information, really unleash the power of autonomy. Yeah, but there is a big of a trend, right? How it's end-to-end deep learning aspects, doing everything, you know, end-to-end, at least on the research side, right? From perception to learning to actuation, you want to do it end-to-end, whether it's drone-based or car-based or the bitles, you know, robotics. Though, you know, what what is your stack, right? Is that something maybe, you know, you have heard also, you know, followed uh, the work of Kapathy Software 3.0, you know, uh, putting everything as, an, as a, you know, a learn challenge, right? Uh, make everything as a learnable challenge and then an ensemble of basically neural nets uh, forcing towards end-to-end scenarios. Is that uh, also an industrial domain? Is that somehow you, mm-hmm. you follow to say, uh, yeah? I would say maybe one day, but may not today, not to make an impact in the next five years. The interesting thing about the industrial domain is that we have very good controllers, very good old-fashioned control that works very well when you can model your environment. So in, like, if you want the robot to, to go from A to B, why would you throw the robot controller out? Right? Why would you not take into account the carefully crafted controller that came with the and to achieve this sub-millimeter precision. But on the other hand, when you are touching something, when you become in contact with the surface, when the contact dynamics come into place, those are very difficult to model. And in those situations, that's where uh, machine learning or data-driven approaches really shine because you can really leverage the trial and error, reinforcement learning approaches to, to really learn a policy that you haven't been programmed before. Also for, for tuning all sorts of parameters and adapt to the wear and tear of the robot, to the self-calibration. Those I'm very optimistic, but not completely end-to-end. It's, it's interesting also how, I mean, linking to what I, just, what I just said, how all these professors, most of them, at least from Peter Beer or Sergey, they started really on the end-to-end learning. But we have really made a difference in our publication, also in our work, since we work together, is on what if we add, for example, knowledge of the CAD file, of what you're trying to assemble into the algorithm. Or if you also add a model predictive control approach algorithm, how can you be better? And we have shown that on those scenarios, you can really be much more precise. We even call it residual reinforcement learning approach where you still have this feedback, traditional feedback loop control whenever you can apply it. But then when you are not confident enough and you uh, don't know the model, that's what you just use your reinforcement learning. I see it more as a, 
as a toolbox, as having a set of toolbox, you know, tools in your tool belt. And machine learning is definitely a very powerful that we can use. Maybe a different question, also concerning your background, is if you would consider the industrial revolution, we had the automation of like the manual tasks. And right now we have a different revolution going on where we try to kind of automate the cognitive tasks as machine learning is doing. It's taking the things that the cognitive choices we make and automates this. Concerning your background as well, um, what do you think might be the next big step after this one, the next revolution in yeah, robotics or automation or anything? Any ideas of that? Yeah, it's a very, very interesting question, right? As you said very well, right? We automated labor, then we are starting to automate cognitive tasks, what else? Even tasks that we think today require a lot of knowledge are beginning to be to be automated, like coding or like tuning parameters in a machine learning, automating the, the automation. Also linking to your previous question, what a major breakthrough in the last year, so I see is this explosion also on, on meta-learning, right? On self-supervising learning, what Jean LeCun defined at the core of the, of the cake in machine learning, where we can see right now, I mean, uh, just going a little bit of describing the algorithm, right? So right now, it still takes a lot of time, as you know, to tune parameters in, in machine learning algorithms. Reinforcement learning, it takes a lot of time to tune those rewards. So what if we can use some meta information to, to kind of learn to learn, teach the system a way that it can learn? Now, the interesting thing or the limitation is that the same that in supervised learning, this is very dependent to distribution in your tests, right? Your test data define a lot, our training data defines a lot. So the next level is really how do you automate the choosing of those tests? So you can generalize better and you can maximize learning. So if you think about that, right, you are given, just put in a very high level analogy, you are giving robots or systems the capability to design their own tests so they can learn more efficiently. So even tasks that we thought that still uh, learn machine learning because this will be the job of the future. I think definitely there is a lot of value in understanding the fundamental, the mathematics. This will never get old. Uh, but just simply learning tools, tuning parameters, this can be even out shortly. Uh, that not, is not being said that humans will not have a job, of course not. But, but I guess there are two different directions. The one is the pure connectionist. So let's try to push semi-supervised or self-supervision, like unsupervised learning approaches. And we throw enough GPU, show enough uh, situation, we throw enough data onto that and we crunch it with effectively machine learning. Then we are confident that we can learn all these different aspects and, you know, uncertainty that the world or mostly all these that we have, right? And then the other side, you have then those aspects say, now we need to reach back actually to symbolic learning right to the you know back to the semantics basically coming again right and obviously one would say yeah what about you know let's let's choose both weapons you know go go to way in the middle right choose from the symbolic learning doing knowledge graph graph structure symbolic aspects and pushing but how do you combine that what's your stake right are you considering yourself in the one community or the, the other or how do you see the interface between connectionist and symbolics movement mm -hmm. yeah definitely in the middle <laughs> I <see> value <laughs> <laughs> value in both. I mean, usually the world is not black and white, right? I mean, if you send a, if you send a robot to Mars, that robot suddenly break a leg, you really want it to learn how to, or loses a will. You really need, want that robot to learn, no matter what it takes, a new environment. If you have any time, is not constrained there. Just learn. Use all your tools that you have to learn as a child will. But in the real world, we have a lot of models. And that comes also, also comes with explainability, a way to 
to not having the, this black box that you cannot explain really what is going on. So a mix of both is what really powerful. You learn something new, you try to represent that back in our knowledge, a new knowledge of knowledge. And we are doing also that type of research with professors like Yuri Lesko, Stefano Ehrman in Stanford. This is really a mix. I mean, you also, I mean, the word is Newtonian, right? <laughs> Why don't you use the laws of physics in your learning force? Really expedite, right? Uh, we use that a lot when we want to learn fast. One of the criticisms of reinforcement learning is that it takes, but hey, let's use as much information as we have about the process to accelerate learning, but also to give it some explainability in a lot of cases is important. Even though I also believe that is overrated. So there is, I mean, it's not like I need to explain everything. I cannot explain also some of the decisions that human people do, right? <laughs> Just look at what politicians say on the news, <laughs> try to explain why. So if I cannot explain why a human take a decision, why I do require the algorithm to do that. I just want it to be safe and I want the overall system to be safe and give the overall constraints around it so that it's safe. So as I said, the word explainability is probably, the term explainability is overrated, but it's good also to have a more knowledge of what is going on in the algorithms and use the power of knowledge graphs or more symbolic approaches, formal methods to to really create a autonomy. Right? You don't want just the robot to take their own decisions. This is not what we are trying to do here, not just a consciousness in robots. We are trying just so that they can be more flexible, more flexible, you know, fast and powerful. Considering what you just said about um, if humans can explain, then robots should, should also not be expected to be able to explain everything. How does this uh, go into the self-driving cars? So right now we have this 1% where we say, well, a lot of the world is, is unexpected and a lot of weird things happen. But can you expect a self-driving car to be to, to never have any kind of accidents? Um, you know, this, this, this story about should it make a calculated choice of either to hit one person or two people, but... If you talk about uh, when humans are facing a situation, they would rather hit five people at the same time, even if they wouldn't have to. So is this a problem that, that robots are have way too high expectations upon them? Definitely, the autonomous cars is a very interesting use case because uh, they are thrown into a system that wasn't designed for them. Manufacturing, you can design the system for account for autonomy. So if there is an accident, usually the case that a human is doing something that is sudden can guarantee certain levels of, of safety. But in the real world, it's impossible to account for all the situations that you can see out there, all the mistakes that can happen, writing on the stressing app. So that's why I see more in the near future a scenario where either geofence deployment, where they are only deployed in very specific situations where humans are not necessarily interacting or able to interact with autonomous vehicles unless in certain points the human either gets out of the car or if the robots drive really, autonomous cars drive really at very low speeds for delivering food, for example, there's some startups trying to that use case. I mean, it's really, if you think about the, the opportunities, right? It's going to be able, we have full autonomy. It's going to really be able to change the life of a lot of people that cannot really drive, particularly in countries like the US where there is no public transport. It's just that it's, we are not there yet, and it's very difficult to account for all possibilities on the world and have the ethical and the law framework around to, to really um, protect the technology. I think mistakes will be made, and robots will, there will be accidents. We just have to, as engineers, make sure that 
we do our best to ensure that the, the systems follow the right procedures and that uh, we have the right standards around to to have trust in those. At the end, that you're trusting your your life in a system that that can kill you. But the same thing happens when you get in your car, right? The engine can suddenly stop and you're in the middle of, uh, of a highway. It's just a different level because you don't feel yourself in control. So I see that still those those questions are so important that still will take many years to solve. Just the truth to be made, right now, as of today, autonomous cars have made zero impact in human life. <laughs> we have been talking for many years, right? Understanding this this really exponential curve from when a technology will be ready is hard. It's a matter of time. It will be a time where cars will be autonomous cars, but it's very difficult to estimate when. And a lot of people have failed in those predictions. What's, what's your bet? Autonomous cars first or flying cars? What do we see first? I think the first thing that will come will be autonomous cars, but geofence or with not fully autonomy, but level autonomy at some very similar to autopilot. You can also argue that already pretty autonomous. But again, also fault in a lot of situations. Maybe we can try a lighthearted question, but also a very interesting one. The people, the audience uh, might also know that in 2013, there was a movie that came out called Her, featuring uh, Scarlett Johansson and Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, are you familiar with this movie? I have heard about that. I haven't seen it. Okay, so basically in the movie, there is a very smart, it's a futuristic movie, but a very smart AI. And there's a love relationship going on from this person who is a person, a human, falling in love with his AI's artificial intelligence. Do you think, uh, maybe talking about robotics and artificial intelligence, we also know that in, 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 I think it's Japan or China, I'm not sure where it was, there's also uh, an increasing trend of companion robots. What is your take on, on this uh, future of maybe people and, and robots living side by side? What do you think about it? Yes, that's a bigger question on how do we really project our fantasies, but also our fears. There is a term now that has been coined by good friend and collaborator Ken Goldberg and others on robot exotism and how do we really project our fears and also fantasies into robots, right? And that's part of the sci-fi culture and as humans ultimate desire of creating life, right? Extend our thoughts beyond our material limits and getting philosophical. But I mean, definitely people get attached and we focus a lot on the on the labor side of things, right? On how humans can make people more productive and really remove us from tedious or dangerous tasks. And we are seeing it today with the current COVID crisis. But there is also the aspect of how robots can help humans on more caring time. There is a very cool uh, startup that created a robot that is in the form of a puppy, right? A, a small dog. And that's very useful for, for people with Alzheimer with people with a child's autism because they really provide certain comfort and it's being shown and there are a lot of studies that really the quality of life really improves. And you cannot, for example, a person with Alzheimer, they cannot have a real dog because they will forget to feed them. But if you have a robot dog, you can you don't have to eat and it can bark. It can also provide all sorts of extra sensory capabilities for the human. So I see a lot of potential, also particularly in, in societies with more older population, like Japan, caring provided by robots, care provided by robots also in hospitals. That's a very important dimension, but also keeping into account limitations will not replace the, the feeling of interacting with a human. You are, I mean, this, if one thing, if one good thing comes out of this COVID-19 crisis is that probably there will be a lot of demystifying of the role of robots, right? 
Maybe you can share a couple of use cases, you know, um, coming a bit uh, to the end. What what are the use cases you've worked on or the industrial domain? Where you're like, oh, that's pretty interesting. That that somehow pushed pushed your, you know, motivation up. And see that, that's awesome. That has an impact in manufacturing. Thanks for asking. So the, um, what I really see is we're working a lot of exciting fronts, but as many also other companies are realizing, one of the, the holy grail of robotics for a long time was universal grasping, being able to grasp any single object in any shape and form. And we are we are making a lot of progress to to incorporate that piece of technology to manufacturing. First, it all started with our work with Berkeley, with Ken Goldberg, and an algorithm called DexNet, the Reality Network. We have continued working with them and created our own flavor of technology that enable robots to grasp any object on a beam. Still, it's very powerful, but we have to also understand the, the limitations. But we are already quite fast as a kind of a warehouse or logistic worker could do. If you think about that work right now, I mean, Amazon is required to hire 100,000 people just to keep up with the demand on the fulfillment centers. And that's very difficult when you want to keep social distance. Amazing that a robot could do that work. That is basically moving objects from one place to another. There's a lot of focus on the picking. Placing is equally important. And then you need to also add some constraints. We are also working in the front of assembly, making able robots to assemble electronics, big parts where you use uh, also reinforcement learning to learn the contacts and be able to, to assemble two parts together, same thing that humans could do. We are also applying other techniques of AI to industries that haven't been automated at all. For example, garment is a trillion dollar industry that manufacturing of clothes. That is mostly manual. We are working with very interesting startups and government agencies to be able to automate that with some components of AI, but also good old-fashioned control systems, the broader term of AI, not only much a broader term, to tackle that problem of automating industries rely completely on, on human labor. So it's a very, very exciting time to work in the intersection of robotics and AI. I like to say when I look into a, to hire a new person, right, and to a roboticist, and roboticists are like a renaissance engineer, right? Because they need to know control, they need to know physics, they need to know the math, and now we are throwing them computer vision, you're throwing them uh, software, and you're throwing them machine learning. So the most multidisciplinary branch of engineering that I can think about. And, and the embodiment is what we really care about. Uh, there is a big difference between the kind of machine learning and algorithms that we can do in data science with pure data and what we really transfer into an embodied a physical device, the power of autonomy. Maybe finally, for, the, for all geeks out there, right? What, what is your recommendation? How do you get started in autonomous system in robotics? Are there any people you say that you need to follow in a Twitter accounts, any Udacity or Coursera courses, university rolled out, right? Any resources to share, right? Is there a any? Okay. So yeah, happy to share. For all of those people that are now working from home and they have kids that they need to be entertained, like myself, that I have a two-year-old. There is a very cool book by the daughter of Ken Goldberg, Bluma Goldberg, called How to Train Your Robot. So you can start infusing some interest of robotics to your youngsters at home. If you want to 
get into into robotics and learn more, I suggest any book on on ROS. The robotic operating system is very useful because that also will give you the software flavor of it. And there is a good one by Morgan Kigley called Robots with ROS, Programming Robots with ROS. On the more traditional, I mean, kind of the in the one book that should be in every bookshelf of roboticists is this probabilistic robotics by Dieter Fox and others. Dieter Fox is also another of four collaborators now working part-time between the University of Washington and NVIDIA. And obviously, I mean, more on the science fiction, I am still a fan of iRobot by Asimov. Yeah, let's let the law begin, right? Okay. Um, and for the end, maybe, you know, let me give you a couple of sentence starters or phrases, right? You want to finish up that, right? Uh, play a little ping pong game, okay? Siemens is. 170 years old startup, uh, door opener name and always deliver attitude. Communication is. Communication is being in touch with each other, being sure that your message is delivered and understood. Purposes. Contributing to something bigger than yourself, transforming into. My favorite quote is from. Eleanor Roosevelt. The future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. Oh, nice. And last and finally, my personal moonshot is. Democratize the access to robotics, enable. True flexible manufacturing, logistics, and service that multiply, not replace, but multiply human reach. Visionary. There you go. Thank you so much, Juan. So for everyone out there listening, stay tuned. There are way more episodes coming your way. So remember to stay bold, committed, and open-minded, and we'll be hearing you here at the same place, the Siemens AI podcast. So thank you, everyone, for joining in. And that was it for today. Bye.